What is it like to look at the global corporate landscape and say, no, I'm choosing to create a new company? Welcome to another episode of Relearning Leadership, where we explore a specific leadership challenge and break it down to help improve your leadership, your organization, and even your personal life. Today, we follow the story of Amit Kalarikal, a first-time co-founder and CEO of Fisherman, a startup building a no-effort web for small businesses. Three years in, Amit is navigating the risks and rewards of venturing on this new risky path. Yeah, jumping from college to a CEO role was a little bit daunting. I, at that time, had no experience with startups. Fast forward three years, a lot has happened in the bootstrapping and fundraising along the way to, to get here. Midway through our conversation, we're joined by Rachel Weston Rowell, a senior vice president with Insight Partners, helping startup leaders scale up their organizational discipline and culture. There's so many moments where you're out over the edge of your skis, as we like to say in Colorado, and you're doing something you haven't done before, and yet you have to show the rest of the organization that it's okay, that we're safe, that all of this is gonna work out. Thank you for joining us today. Let's dive in. Well, I'd like to introduce Amit, who is a co-founder and first-time CEO of Fisherman. Welcome to the show, Amit. Thank you for having me, Pete. Well, as what I would call the first salesman and fundraiser for your company, I could imagine you have a great elevator pitch. Do you mind sharing that with us? I'd be happy to, yeah. Essentially, the, the problem is there are over 20 million small businesses in the U.S. alone, and about 30% of those small businesses don't even have a website, let alone really good and rich digital marketing to help their businesses succeed online. So for us at Fisherman, we're trying to help those businesses out. And there's a lot of different solutions out there for websites and for digital marketing, but a lot of those are either expensive where you have to hire an agency to spend a lot of time working with you hands-on uh, to put something together, or they're very do-it-yourself and self-service where you need to build and manage and design everything yourself. And for a lot of these small business owners, they lack the technical savviness to do it themselves. They lack the budget to go hire an agency. So they're left with nothing. And what we're trying to do at Fisherman is solve for that gap and build software that can handle all of that creation, the design, the development, the management of the digital marketing world for these businesses fully automatically. And we're starting with websites and SEO for restaurants. That's excellent. And having been personally through probably five or six website builds myself, I know that can get quite expensive. The reason I like your story is, you know, and I, I hesitate to call you young because I think that makes me feel old and I don't want to <laughs> feel that way. But you are just a few years out of college. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. About three years out of college. I'm curious about your journey out of leaving school and getting into the CEO role. That was pretty quick for you. Definitely. It's, it's always exciting to talk about our story since it does feel on one hand that we're early in our story, but on the other, we've put so much time into this that sometimes it's, it's weird to look back three years ago and think we were just in school. But my co-founder and I, we met in school as seniors in college. The first conversation we had was me pitching Fisherman to, to him, to Nick. And he had a full-time job offer at the time to be a software engineer. And uh, I was sure I wanted to work full-time on a startup. 
Fortunately, towards the end of college, we got into an accelerator program called Mass Challenge in Boston. And that was the first indicator to us from the outside world that maybe we had something that was worth pursuing full time. And we both decided at that time, all right, we're going to we're going to do this. We're going to go full time. Hmm. He reneged his job offer. We ended up moving into his parents' house in the suburbs of Boston, lived there for a full year. They were gracious enough to let us live rent-free there for a while. And the whole time we were building the product, we were talking to early users. We were building relationships, building our network. But yeah, jumping from college to a CEO role was a little bit daunting. But fortunately for me, I had had worked in a startup prior to that. And so had Nick. Nick had worked in a couple startups during college doing development. And I had been on the founding team of a startup during college. And I, at that time, had no experience with startups. But the co-founders had a lot of experience there. They came from Silicon Valley. And I learned a lot as we together built this organization to exit. And that gave me the confidence to try to pursue something like this. So uh, it just felt like the right move to work full time on something ourselves. And fast forward three years, a lot has happened in the bootstrapping and fundraising along the way to, to get here. But very, very grateful for that decision. Well, you're following in a lot of garage footsteps of HP and Apple and, and Facebook. Talk a little bit about the feeling side of this as far as that jump and that risk of not having a salary. Did that feel risky at all to you? Or was this like, I'm used to living on this college salary of no salary? Yeah, I think a couple of things here. I mean, early on, when I was in high school, even I saw financial independence as being a really important quality. I wanted to be financially independent as early as I could so that I could make decisions fully on my own. From high school, I started working jobs, just making a little bit of money here and there. But even just for college, a lot of my decision making about where I would go was around what type of school could I go to that allows me to to graduate with the least amount of student debt. So I was able to graduate without any student loans. And I think that's a huge advantage because otherwise I would have absolutely felt more financial pressure to get a job that could help to pay off those debts. And then lastly, you know, Nick and I knew that no matter what, the value of the growth that would come from trying to build something from scratch, it would make us better candidates overall for the same types of jobs that we would have been applying to during school. It felt like we'd only be stronger as we built our network more, we built skills more and understood what was possible more. You know, I think you're right. I know when I look back at my career, I find those risky jumps to be the most growth oriented. They're the the ones where you have to show up that force you to sink or swim. And I can imagine it's escalated your growth as an early entrepreneur. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think the mindset has to be, it doesn't even feel like a risk because in the worst case scenario, the things that you're gaining make it worthwhile. And um, if you're seeking maybe financial gain alone, it could definitely be seen as risky. And I absolutely understand the situation that a lot of people are in. It doesn't really make sense to take that type of risk. But as relatively young people, where we know we can go develop a career outside if we needed to at the time, it felt worthwhile since for us, the risk profile was more around learning and skills and network building. To be honest, I personally didn't feel like I was taking a huge risk at any point. It was scary because there was so much we didn't know about and didn't know what was going to happen, but it was really exciting. Well, it's interesting you got through school without loans because I know you haven't gotten through this corporate thing without some financing. Talk to us a little bit about that journey in terms of that risk profile and how much you really want to go into debt as a company. I think there are absolutely Silicon Valley companies that are a lot more risk tolerant when it comes to fundraising. 
than we are. But on the other hand, right, we have raised capital. We haven't been fully bootstrapped. And it's a constant question of, all right, what's the right balance here for the growth of this business, as well as for leverage that you you have in the business? So we wanted to wait as long as we could to, to raise money until we felt confident ourselves that this is something that is valuable to the market. So the first year, we didn't even consider raising capital. We were just very focused on building We also started a web design and development agency to help us bootstrap as long as we could. And finally, it came time where we had a product that was working. We had our first few customers that were happy and we had our first opportunity to market in a bigger way. So we were able to raise a little bit of capital and use that to start to pay ourselves for the first time, to shut down our custom development agency, to move into Boston and really just take on higher stakes. We still haven't raised a kind of traditional institutional venture capital round, mostly because it's a different level at that point where you bring on another board member or board members and the direction the company's turned a little bit. And you also have a responsibility to grow along certain metrics and to burn more capital and and hit certain numbers. For us, we felt like there's still a lot of different ways we could find our growth and we wanted to control as much as possible until a point where it's very clear that you know X amount of capital in leads to Y capital out. And when we know that, then it can make sense to bring someone on who's done that type of scaling before and to bring a lot of money on to just grow faster. But traction speaks volumes. And I think going as far as you can to get traction without outside capital, the better. We've been really fortunate to have investors up till today that trust us as co-founders to lead the direction of the company and are really supportive in a lot of other ways too. So it's been a nice balance. What I'm hearing is a tremendous amount of maturity in your decision-making, not wanting to give up too much control, recognizing growth just for growth's sake can be dangerous. What have you run into that maybe you just did not anticipate as you entered into this? Most things I think were a little bit surprising to me since it's all pretty new. We've had to learn everything from scratch, everything from the hiring process, the sourcing, the interviewing, the onboarding, the vetting, the due diligence, you know, the management afterwards. One thing that's been surprising is to realize how consistently there's a process that can be applied to these functions. I really thought all of these functions would be super distinct, but there's kind of a consistent process I go through whenever there's a new thing to, to work on. First, there's research, and that research involves talking to a lot of people getting a lot of advice, specifically talking to people who have done it before, and then building a spreadsheet of targets to to go after and running a process, really. Another thing that's been surprising is just how accessible a lot of people really are. I think I sort of imagine that as an early stage startup founder, trying to get in touch with people who are running much larger operations or, you know, execs at much larger corporations would be really difficult to get in touch with. But I found it to be kind of the opposite. A lot of people are, are really willing to give their time, especially when it's a, an early stage startup, to offer advice, to offer guidance, and potentially collaborate because they see it as a source of innovation. And so I, I found that you know cold, targeted email outreach and LinkedIn outreach has been a lot more effective than I expected. It's been very cool to see, and you know hopefully I can pay it forward too. I think that's nice to hear that our community is as collaborative as they are competitive. What would you say has maybe been the most challenging as a first-time CEO? Yeah, I think the single most challenging thing that I constantly have to be reminded of, I even leave a note to myself every month, is spending time between working on the business versus working in the business. And I think especially not having a ton of strategy and leadership experience, 
there's a default setting to go and do things yourself, especially as an entrepreneur, where early on it was just Nick and me doing everything ourselves. There is a tendency to just go right into the weeds, to, to do all the research, to have all the conversations, to build all the specking docs and implementation, everything from scratch. And when you have a team available and you have capital and you really need to grow, trying to pull back, figure out how to delegate effectively and think more strategically long-term is critical. And it's always evolving. Every day we're slightly different business and every month things look very different and every six months almost unrecognizable. It's extremely important to be mindful of what's the right balance because that balance changes. You described that really well. You've been learning really well because I would say there's many leaders twice your age who still struggle with letting go, who still struggle with separating the work in the business, the projects and the technology from on the business. What's the culture? Is the team needed to deliver this product we're building? That's a hard switch for leaders at every level in an organization. Yeah. I was having this reflection a couple of days ago. I keep a to-do list. I need to keep a really clear documented list of things that have to get done. But over time, keeping that list and referencing that list, I can almost sense my brain thinking, okay, to-do list mentality, got to check the boxes, got to finish these tasks when it really shouldn't be thinking of it that way. It should be thinking what's actually meaningful. Why are these tasks on this list? So I've started meta, ironically, adding in a task to ask myself why those things are on that list to begin with. Yeah. And whether you should be doing them. Whether you should be doing them. Exactly. Yeah. So with regard to the success side here, what do you claim to be critical to that early success and that early growth you've had so far? I think a couple of things stand out. And we have been working hard for three years and building a, a robust product and working closely with users the whole time. But you know, it's still a long way from finding what I would consider to be you know, meaningful success. I think a couple of things in particular help. One is mentors, surrounding yourself with people who have done it before, mm. both in macro sense of building businesses before, but also specifically the type of industry that you're in and understanding the types of customers you work with, people who you can bounce around ideas with and avoid blind spots and potential pitfalls down the road. The other thing is just a really relentless focus on unit economics find that magic equation of, all right, we take this amount of capital in, we can produce this amount of revenue. Just really staying focused on unit economics has made us stand out among other companies at our stage. And I think investors that we've talked to and other people in this space have really liked that since that's how they think about it too. Yeah, having watched enough Shark Tank, I think you did quite well pitching to some of that crew. <laughs> Where, show me the numbers. Yeah. <laughs> So if, if somebody else is thinking about this journey, you know, whether they're fresh out of school or coming in with some experience, any thoughts you have on what you might recommend to them? Yeah, I not that long ago was reading this post by David Cummings around the comparable time it takes to build a $5 million business versus a $50 million business versus a $500 million business from an individual founder's time perspective. And I thought that was really compelling since depending on your ambitions, your goals, you know you're going to be spending a lot of time, but humans have limited time and, and you can use that time to, to build something that is small or you could build something big or even bigger. And I think it's just worth thinking about because I think most founders, um, myself included, want to build something really, really big 
And I think it's important that early on you do the research, do the soul searching, do the reflection to see is, is what you're working, what you're planning to dedicate however many years of your life to, is it worth it? Is it, is it big enough to be worth occupying that much of your attention? And then the second thing is, I really think the founder journey that I've been on, I have zero regrets and I've honestly enjoyed it. I haven't been super stressed out at any point because consistently I've really felt like I'm growing more than I'm losing. And going back to what we were talking about earlier, if you care about growth that's bigger than the job description and outcomes that are bigger than the roadmap, then it's really a can't lose situation. If that feels like the type of person you are, then you're probably just limiting yourself by not doing it. Yeah, it reminds me of our last episode with Dean Leffingwell. If you find your passion, you won't have to work a day in your life or it doesn't feel like work. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine for somebody on the creative spectrum that this is quite exciting. For somebody who likes a little bit more stability, probably a little scary. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. I happen to be obsessed with change, so <laughs> I think that works out. I now want to expand our discussion and bring in Rachel Weston-Rowell, a senior vice president at Insight Partners, a New York-based venture capital firm helping startups to scale up. Rachel assists their portfolio company leaders to enhance organizational discipline and culture. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thanks, Pete. Well, it's exciting to have you join Amit and I in this dialogue, and I know you've been listening in. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on Amit's story. What jumps out to you? One of the things that I find fascinating about startups, and I definitely heard in your conversation with Amit, is the speed at which learning happens in the startup environment. I mean, we're always learning in companies, but I feel like it's at hyperdrive speed when you're in a startup. And so I was curious a little bit about what that experience has been like for Amit and how you balance taking in all this new information and how that directs you on your path while at the same time paying attention to who you really want to be in the market and for your customers. Yeah, it's a great question. One piece of advice I got early on was there's always going to feel like a hundred things going on at the same time. And it's important to recognize the one or two levers in the current moment that are most important to focus on. That's been my approach to try to narrow in on what is the one thing I should really try to focus on right now. But the other side of your question, which I thought was interesting, was focusing on what our, our unique value is as a company. And when I think about fishermen, I think we're really product heavy and we've got a lot of great technical expertise. And I think it is important to, no matter which lever we're focused on, to not lose sight of that. So yeah, I, I do think it's a constant learning curve and it always feels like there's not enough time to learn what's necessary, but focusing and narrowing in on one or two things has been helpful. Yeah. As I've worked with startup leaders, one thing I've seen happen sometimes is you have a really good idea, right? I and mean, that's why you're doing this. I have an idea that I can help people with. Maybe I even have technology or tools that I'm really proud of and we're really excited about we can help people with. But there can be moments when you go and you actually talk to the market and you realize that there's some aspect of the thing that you've created that you're proud of that doesn't really satisfy what they need. And that can actually almost feel like a knock to your pride or your belief in what you're doing. And I wonder, have you had that happen yet where you've maybe had to take something that you thought you were right about and take a turn and say, like, I think we were wrong. How do you work through that as a leader? 
Yeah, that happens all the time. It actually just happened. I just realized one of these situations yesterday. And it especially happens a lot to us because we're trying to innovate in a category and, and build certain technologies that haven't existed before. And there's always that balance of having to build something in order to see if it works, but also collecting feedback to know what to build. So it's this you know, weird chicken and egg problem that can be challenging to the right balance to strike. We in fact, budget on our product roadmap, you know, upwards of 50% of our time in the quarter during the month, we're going to have to change direction because all it takes, especially at our early stage, one big opportunity can be enough of an influencing factor to completely shift our priorities. And there's also situations where we've realized, oh, wow, this thing that we didn't think was going to be valuable is actually very valuable. That's what happened to us. That's what I realized yesterday was a, a certain product that we decided not to build because we thought there was enough competitors that were offering a solution here already. But it turns out that those competitors were missing something really specific that made all the difference. So it's important to be comfortable with being wrong and, and changing gears as needed, but also staying true to your core direction of where you're heading and, and not give up 100% of your time to new things. So Rachel, let me turn this question on you. Do you see something in leaders that might help them recognize this? Because I can imagine this sense of pride and the sense of rightness mm -hmm. is in a lot of these founders. Yeah, there's this mantra I often have both for myself and with other leaders, which is strong beliefs loosely held. Mm. So as a leader, you have to be clear and consistent in your vision to help people stay aligned and motivated. It's so important to set that path and keep people on it. You keep beating that drum, like here's where we're going. But then you also have to be able to say, we were wrong, or I was wrong. And now we need to go this direction instead. And I think in the pace of startups, that happens really rapidly. And so I feel like you build up this great muscle memory about how to do that and people get more comfortable with it. But I think as companies scale, it hardens a little bit for some leaders and they get kind of stuck with, no, we're right, we're right, we're right. And it becomes harder for them to do the quick pivoting and shifting that startups do. And you see companies saying, we need to be more innovative. And I think at the core of that is this, self-recognition, hopefully self-recognition of, I as a leader need to be more willing to kind of let go of my strong beliefs to make them more loosely held and be more willing to say, maybe we got this wrong, or maybe the market changed, or maybe that competitor was right, or maybe our data was not as good as we thought it was, and now we need to shift direction a little bit. But it is always that balance between you don't want your company to feel like you're wishy-washy. You don't want to feel like people start doubting that the leadership knows what they're doing. So so it's a balance and it, it's a dance you have to do. Yeah, I love your one-liners, Rachel. Yeah. You come up with them all the time. <laughs> Strong beliefs loosely yeah. held. <laughs> we'll remember that one. Yes, yeah. One of the things that we saw is Amit's ability to pivot and change. How do we find the right balance between that vision that we might create and change? Does that show up in some other ways? Yeah, it has me thinking about the importance of being outcome focused versus output focused. Amit, you brought this up actually when you were talking and thinking about why are things on your list and not just having the list that you execute against, but being really thoughtful about why they're there in the first place, which to me is really an outcome mindset versus an output mindset. And I think it's easy to fall into that behavior of output. 
which features are we delivering? Which customers are we selling? The timeline and the things that we're trying to push out of the organization, it can lock us in to a path that doesn't respond to the new information that we have. Versus if we stay focused on outcomes, the output can shift and change and our feature sets can change and our approaches can change. But the goals that we have, the intention that we have, the why that we bring to the space can stay more solid. And so I think it gives us more flexibility. You know, this is one of the things I think agile mindset really got right, which is let's let the scope flex. As long as we know where we're trying to go and the outcomes we're trying to deliver, we have so much more flexibility in how we achieve those goals. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. It's really insightful. I, I think about our own roadmap and, and even in my own personal life, how I think about my own goals. I'll start as high level, as long term as possible. And a lot of times those are just trajectories. And I definitely find that the more steps towards the present day that I get, the more flexibility I need to factor in. The individual things you come up with to try to achieve those outcomes, those are the things that flex a lot more. You bring up a visual for me, and that is, you know, we often say, you know, we have clarity and vision, but agility and execution. And that signals this long-term focus on something, but that near-term pivot you need because you run into things along the way. So Rachel, what are the specific types of a meet you're looking for, right? What are some of those characteristics you look for in the CEOs that are coming to you? Yeah. Part of it depends on where the company is in its growth cycle, but I'll focus on sort of scaling businesses because that's historically where I've spent a lot of my time. Often what I'm looking for and what I'm hoping to help with is how do you design an organization that can scale rapidly? Because typically if you get a big infusion of investment, it's so that you can grow faster. That's often what's happening, especially at the post-startup phase. You found product market fit. You found that sweet spot between your addressable market and what you have to bring. And the investment is a way to get access to more of the market more quickly, whether that's through building new aspects of your product or increasing your go-to-market motion, whatever it is. And that's going to mean building up the company, hiring more people, expanding the number of products you have, whatever that looks like. And so we're looking at from a leadership standpoint, do the leaders have what they need, both in terms of organizational structures, tools, but also in terms of their skills and their capacity to scale that organization that quickly. I regularly have seen companies in my career who are going to hire as many people in a year as they currently have on staff, right? So they're 75 people today and they're going to be 150 by the end of the year. That's not an easy thing to do because it's not just the hiring, right? Which in and of itself is a huge amount of effort that you have to go through of recruiting and interviewing and onboarding and all of that. But it's where do those people go? Which teams are they on? Do we have to redesign teams? Who do they report to? Is there enough leadership to support them? Do the tools we have support them, right? There's all these questions. So scaling and the capacity to do that and having what you need on hand to be successful with that, that's a very important element that I'm often looking at and making sure that those folks feel supported and able to do it because you don't want investment to blow your company up. <laughs> that would be the opposite of what we're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> Amit, on the receiving end, do you also look at partners 
who bring in a little bit more, it's not just about the money, or is it a little bit more of the Tom Cruise, show me the money? I'm curious about your perspective on how discerning are you on the receiving end? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I do think about this a lot, and I do think my thoughts evolve on this, in part due to the shifting power dynamics. I think a lot of it does come down to the power dynamic between an investor and a startup or a founder. And those aren't the same in every situation at all. Really good startups can pick and choose which investors come onto their team. But companies that really need to raise money and are a little bit more desperate to raise funding and maybe have less of a network, there's less power there to, to pick and choose where that money is coming from. So in my own case, as much as possible, I'd like to be in a position of being able to pick and choose. And to the extent that I can, absolutely. You can raise money from a couple different sources, then it does come more down to, well, what in addition to the money is being included here? What are the types of expertise they bring or the network they bring? I do think about stuff like diversity of our team going forward, because that's a weakness. And so much of that is also based on, well, how big is your own network? And what are the resources like to, to be able to grow outside of the way that you are? So there's a constantly shifting power dynamic. When we talked to meet, I know early on, you were much more interested in me as a person than my money. That's something I really appreciated. What can you bring to our business? And you said that to me, what can you bring to our business that's meaningful? Mm-hmm that the investment then helps fuel. And so I really loved how you've been quite selective, at least in the early angel funding stages of the people you've brought on board. Yeah, we have a spreadsheet of all the people in our cap table and a list of the the things that they bring to the table. And we try to make sure that everyone brings slightly different things to the table. And there's always things in that spreadsheet outside of just capital. So again, I think we're fortunate to be in a position where we can do that. But considering that we are in that position, it's absolutely something that's top of mind for me because we want to build relationships and you're dedicating so much of your life and so much of your time to a venture and investors, advisors, mentors, employees, customers. These are all people you're spending a lot of time with. And ideally, you're building relationships along the way too that that last even beyond the venture. You know, I mean, you talked about paying it forward and, and all the mentors that you have and how you want to take that and bring that forward. And I think that's a great example of the positives that can come from that. Totally. Yeah. And it's the, here are the things that I'm very glad that I have and how can I help others have those things. Yeah. And I know Amit has been playing a lot with letting go of things and delegating things. And Amit, you mentioned that earlier in the interview. Have there been really hard things to let go of? Yeah, for sure. The stuff that I have been working on for the longest, I think generally is the hardest to let go. Another way I've been thinking about it recently is the sense of control that you know I might feel is kind of tied to an insecurity. And the insecurity is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just insecurity because I lack some knowledge. There's just some unknowns out there. And as a result of the unknowns, there's some insecurity. And as a result of that, I feel the need to control it more. Thinking about insecurity in a different way, from a personal standpoint, you want to make sure as the leader of your organization that you're seen as someone who's providing value. I think it's easy to cling to the things that you know you do really well, just because it can help you you be seen in the organization as being someone who's doing a really great job. I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. I think sometimes if you do something really well, you should be doing it. But 
as you're growing a company, you simply can't do everything and your role has to change. So I think that can be another element is, is knowing that you're going to have to develop some level of authority, some level of respect, some level of expertise in a completely new area. And I think that can be hard for sure. Yeah, I love the way you described that, Amit, because I another one-liner I didn't make up, but that I like to hold on to is it's lonely at the top. I feel that so much for CEOs, especially, I mean, I think for the entire executive team, it's true, but especially for the CEO, because at the end of the day, everybody expects you have the answer or you know what you're doing. And the truth is there will be many times in the growth of the company when you have to do something that you've never done before. That's part of the growth of a company. I mean, there's very few CEOs out there who've done all of the things and could just step into any environment and be like, oh yeah, I've seen this one before, right? So especially I think in the startup phase, there's so many moments where you're out over the edge of your skis, as we like to say in Colorado, and you're doing something you haven't done before. And yet you have to show the rest of the organization that it's okay, that we're safe, that all of this is going to work out. And so I think having relationships with mentors or having relationships with investors. And I love that you, you know, you asked Pete, what can you bring those types of relationships and finding ways for people to help guide you really helps. And I love to see CEOs doing that and building those communities because it is lonely at the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll end it there. Lonely <laughs> at the top. Sounds like our title of this episode. <laughs> Hopefully not too lonely. <laughs> Fortunately, I have you know, a co-founder, a business partner, and we have very complementary skill sets. So it makes it easier to, to divvy things up and to share a lot as well. You got a buddy. Yeah, I got a buddy through it. I like it. Always have a buddy. Misery loves company. Come on. Yeah, there we go. Another one-liner. All right. <laughs> well, I just want to say thank you to both of you for engaging in this dialogue, sharing a little bit about the challenges and rewards of being in, in such a startup and scale-up. So just want to say thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Pete. Meet. it was so nice to meet you. Likewise, Rachel. Really great chatting with you. What have you learned from the choices Amit made on his founder's journey? Here's what I'm taking from this story. First, risk is a perception. Amit chose to equate his job risk with learning and growth opportunity. Does that make a startup environment more or less risky? Choosing risks like a startup provide many more heat moments for growth. Listen to our future leader episode number three for more on that. Number two, keep a loose grip. As I've learned in my own golf swing, if my strong aim leads to a strong grip, my shot will likely falter. Having strong convictions and vision are a great asset until your environment changes around you. Your ability to pivot based on real empirical data is just as important as beating that drum of direction. And finally, phone some friends. While seemingly lonely at the top, Amit has surrounded himself with a strong co-founder and a diverse team of mentors, advisors, and investors to increase his pace of learning and improve his company's success profile. Now, as was mentioned in the episode, I am an advisor for Amit and an investor in Fisherman. I choose to invest in people over products. And as someone twice his age, I find his focus, priorities, and willingness to reach out for help to be strong signals of a great investment. I'm Pete Behrens, 
Thank you for joining us today. Relearning Leadership is the official podcast of the Agile Leadership Journey. It's hosted by me, Pete Behrens, with analysis from our global guide community. It's produced by Ryan Dugan, with music by Joy Zimmerman. If you love listening to this podcast, please leave us a review. And visit our website, relearningleadership.show, for guest profiles, episode references, transcripts and comments, and more. And to relearn more about your own leadership, visit us at agileleadershipjourney.com.